This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Monday, December 3rd is our annual gala, Winter in the Garden, and you are invited. Celebrate the season with Heritage Radio Network at the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. It's the one night of the year where you can show your support for HRN while sipping on champagne, hanging out with our hosts, and bidding on one-of-a-kind silent auction items. VIP hour goes from 6 to 7, featuring a tour of the Bonsai Room. At 7, all of our guests can sample bites from some of our favorite chefs. Head to heritageradionetwork.org gala for tickets. Welcome to Why Food. This is your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. And I'm Ethan Frisch. Uh, Why Food is the podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and creative people who have left behind former careers to join the food, beverage, and hospitality industry. This week, we're super excited to have Alex Mayasi, who's the editor at Gastro Obscura. He left college wanting to be a diplomat and through a series of fortuitous events has become a food editor and writer. So thank you for joining us, Alex. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so Alex, tell us uh, how you got into food writing. You, you didn't start in, in food writing. You started your career as a, a different kind of journalist. But let's start with the transition into food and then we'll work our way back. So when I first got really into journalism, I was doing mainly business and economic stories, although I had a lot of freedom um, to write about all sorts of different topics. I was at a media startup called Priceonomics in San Francisco. Um, which in itself has, has quite an interesting backstory where um, when I first got there, it was kind of a classic tech startup where I was the third employee and it was very unclear what we were doing and we were pivoting from idea to idea and it was a, a classic Silicon Valley experience before we kind of had this moment where we, we kind of realized like, no, we're, we're journalists. We're trying to create a media company here. Um, and so... I think from one perspective, it could seem that I'm doing something very different. Um, before I did stories about um, marketing campaigns and cryptocurrencies um, and topics that feel very far from, um, you know, cheese that is supposed to have live insects on it when you when you oh, pull yes. it out of its case to or that. to give another <laughs> example um you know a, a rare fusion food that resulted um in a, a very particular diaspora you know those those feel pretty distinct um but i think also from another perspective and and the one that hues closer to how i think about um my writing and editing and my my own career um they feel really uh in step with each other so when i was doing more business and economics reporting. Um, it was more in line with what you might um, hear or read in the context of Freakonomics or Planet Money. Um, so I was doing, you know, not as the stock market up or down, but I was doing stories about um, a famous marketing campaign that is responsible for the stereotypical association between Subarus and lesbians. Um, oh, which is a story in itself <laughs> um, and a story that I absolutely love and it is a very endearing one. Um, 
but yeah, I think I think the the two are kind of uh, in, in step with each other because I've always enjoyed stories where that are a bit more um, offbeat and more in, involved, really finding uh, a kind of story that um, you know is is a little bit hidden. Um, and so that's something that I did in, in business and economics reporting, um, and something that I do now in food. So you know they can be very different topics, um, but there's there's a way that I feel like I'm still doing the same thing. Do you still remember the first food-related story that you wrote? I think the very first I wrote... Oh, the very first food-related article I wrote was about the economics of food trucks. Okay. <laughs> um, so this was at roughly peak food truck era, and I was in the Bay Area at the time at, at Priceonomics. Um, and I think it it was a lot of fun because at the time I didn't really... You know, this was before we really had the sense we were trying to start a media company. So it was kind of unclear. Am I a journalist here? What am I doing? I don't know. I'm just a person who's curious about food trucks. And I want to know, are the economics of food trucks better than restaurants? Should I expect food trucks to be taking over more and more? Like, who goes into this business? What are the benefits of it? Um, and it was a lot of fun to just show up at, at food truck parks and ask people questions and um, at the time, I was not familiar with any particular journalistic code of ethics. So when, after an hour of, of speaking with two brothers um, who ran a, a, a Thai food truck, said, hey, you want, like, you want some Pad Thai? You want a Thai iced tea? And I was just like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> um, there, was, there was no journalistic thought of, oh, I would have to pay you for that, um, which, is, which was a benefit at the time, I suppose. Um, so that was my first food story. What uh, what kinds of stories do you run at Gastro Obscura, and how does it tie into the the larger mission of Atlas Obscura? Yeah, so Atlas Obscura um, is um, a publication that's our mission is really about um, making people experience wonder and just appreciate this amazing world that we all share. Um, so we're both a, a publication that. Um, publishes lots of stories and as well as a number of books, uh, a growing number of books. Um, we're also a company that does amazing events and that takes people on trips all over the world. And uh, there, there's, you know, there are other media companies, of course, doing doing events or, or, or having different aspects of their business. But I think for Atlas Obscura, it really makes a lot of sense and it's essential we're doing all those things because we don't just want people to read a story or watch a video. Um, we want people to be inspired to get out and do things. We want people to learn about an amazing place, whether that's on the other side of the globe or whether that's actually around the corner and they just had no idea that it's been there or they didn't realize that there's some huge backstory to this building they've been walking by every day on their way to work. Uh, we want people to, to go out and, and see that place. Um, we want people to, to get out and learn. We want people to go out and, and try foods that they, they learn about um, from Gastro Obscura. Um, so Atlas Obscura is really about inspiring a sense of, a sense of wonder and getting people, inspiring people to go out and, and do things and, and have great experiences. And uh, you started your writing career writing a book as well. Can you talk to us about that um, and how that kind of happened? Sure. So that's, that's going backwards in time um, to 2011, 2012, when I was... Uh, living in Cairo, Egypt, um, and it was a it was a particular time to be in Egypt. Um, so I arrived shortly after the Arab Spring started, and shortly after the Egyptian Revolution, which which toppled their 
the dictator who had ruled the country for 30 years, Hosni Mubarak. Um, I think I arrived in classic young recent grad style full of optimism and with this sense of mission that I was um, there inspired by, um, you know, all these people who had risked their lives for democracy and freedom. Um, and, and those words were really important and, and, and really every, everyone there really tangibly felt what they meant. Um, and so I had, when I had been in a, a college, I'd graduated in 2011, I had been studying international relations. I had spent some time in the Middle East, been very interested and intrigued by just the way that when you're there, it felt like anything could change at any moment. It felt very dynamic. Um, I had some family connection to the region as well, which, which deepened my interest. And so I had been intending to continue learning Arabic with the goal of uh, perhaps one day becoming a diplomat. And, you know, then halfway through my, my last year of college, the revolution started, the Arab Spring started, um, and moving to Cairo, it felt a bit like moving to Berlin after the, the Berlin Wall felt, you know, something like that, where it felt like this could be a kind of um, huge, huge shift. And I, I had some, you know, all these nice optimistic sentiments about imagining, you know, 30 years later after a career in diplomacy or foreign affairs, there could have been so much progress in the region that you kind of get on a train in Morocco, go through the Middle East, and you end in, you know, in Israel. And it's, you know, you're not going constantly through checkpoints, but it's a very easy journey, and you're, you're stopping and seeing friends all the way along the way. Um, so when I was planning to move to Cairo, I was introduced to an Egyptian democracy activist, uh, a man named Ahmed Salah. Uh, a really amazing, admirable guy who had played a pretty unusual role um, because a lot of activists are, um, they're often, um, I think, you know, they're, they're usually not people who are traveling the world, often people who kind of in the, the early stages when a revolution seems impossible uh, in a police state, in a place that's really repressive. Um, this is certainly not universally true, but a lot of the people making up the, the brunt of a, a very nascent um, activist movement are working class or poor people who, who um, maybe don't have as many uh, as much to lose or as many assets to be targeted or, or um, really feel more tangibly the, the need for change. Um, and so Ahmed was a very unusual figure in that he had been uh, born into a kind of uh, politically elite family. Um, he had family members who had been high ranking in the government, um, if I'm remembering correctly. One of his uncles was one of a very small number of military officers who led the 1952 revolution in Egypt. Um, and so he was someone very well educated from a very prominent family, and yet he was someone who was part of these uh, very prominent person, these nascent democracy movements, just spending years just getting beaten up on the street, threatened by the police, and just putting themselves on the line when there was... Everyone just thought it was crazy to, to hope for democracy the way that they did. Um, and so part of him being this unusual figure was that he kind of assumed this almost unofficial role as a representative of Egypt's democracy activists um, to the world, almost like he was their ambassador. So he would go to Washington, D.C. and meet members of Congress and speak before Congress and meet secretaries of state. And, you know, kind of say, I, I know you're going to still support our dictator no matter what, but if you could maybe give him a, a few less weapons or, well, okay, you're always going to give him weapons, but maybe you could, um, I, I believe what you would kind of, you know, say is, you know, we'd, we'd appreciate it if you were 
um, you know, when we're getting beaten up in the street, if you maybe uh, uh, say some things that would cause the Egyptian government to, to reconsider and give us some space to work in. Um, and so as a result of him being someone who was in D.C. or New York or European capitals, um, he met some of the, the prof- political science, international relations professors who I studied with in college. Um, and so when I was planning to move to Cairo, uh, a professor introduced us and said, Ahmed is looking for help writing a book um, and you're going to Egypt. Uh, and so that's that's how I got started in that project. And you said that um, writing that book and interviewing him and spending was four years with him um, kind of changed and shaped how you approach stories and approach storytelling now. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. I think my own inclinations in writing, I get very interested in um, systems or kind of a specific question I want to answer. And this is something that really came out when I was writing more often about business and economics. Uh, I wanted to know why did, why did something work this way? Um, even if it was something just like, you know, why, why can I get free Wi-Fi in a a $15 hostel? No problem. But if I, if on a rare occasion when I'm at, uh, you know, in the suite of a nice hotel, I have to pay for the Wi-Fi. Like why, why is that? Um, so I love those types of stories. I love having a question that I want to answer. Um, but I also think there's a reason that so many journalists, newspaper writers, they're always looking for a person who represents the story or who's, you know, they're always looking for someone to tell the story. And that's because I, I think it's more common for people to appreciate um, storytelling when it's really embodied through someone, someone, someone who's relatable, um, a kind of main character or protagonist. Um, and so having this... Um, long-running project, uh, which the, you alluded to it taking four years. That's that's not because uh, we, we wrote 10,000 pages. That's because um, working with, uh, you know, a penniless democracy activist in a police state comes with its own unique sets of challenges, and we, we faced some different setbacks that, that resulted in um, it being published a, a bit later than we might have liked, but uh, don't, don't regret it at all. But, um, you know, spending a lot of time um, talking to one person to learn his story, um, it really gave me a lot of appreciation for the power of having a compelling protagonist and telling a story about one person and having a main character. Um, and I think that's something I think about now when I get a pitch and um, like a lot of editors, I might ask a writer, um, you know, who could be the main character in this story or, you know, who are we going to talk to um, and potentially getting excited when it seems like we have a character who, um, you know, they've, they've had an experience that's that's really a story you know they face some sort of problem or challenge and you know they face the the kind of the classic plot that you think about when you're thinking with a a novel or a movie you know they you have a main character there was a a big challenge they faced and you know there's a climactic moment when they resolve it Um, and those are always really exciting stories and I, I think it was a you know benefit to have my first formative experience with writing um, even if it was in, in a uh, completely intentional one, I was not intending to, to have that launch me towards journalism. I think it was very helpful for that to be one where I spent a lot of time digging into one person's story and seeing um, the power of that and, and how there's kind of always more to figure out um, about one person and his or her story. How hard is it to find that protagonist in in food stories where often it's not an individual who's Uh, invented something or created something that you're talking about a larger trend or you're talking about a dish that's typical to a specific cuisine how do you how do you find the the person to to wrap the story around Hmm. that's interesting i mean 
you know, at Gastro, we're, we're more often, you know, not every story is a long story that's the equivalent of, uh, you know, a cover story for a magazine article. So, you know, it's only every once in a while when um, we're looking for a kind of uh, a story that's really driven by a protagonist. Um, so, you know, we, you don't need to force that. I mean, you can never force that. Um, I think it's more often that you're just asking, who do we talk to? Um, how do we get voices in the story? How do we hear from the people affected? Um, and I, I don't think that's that's terribly challenging. But it is really satisfying when you get someone who kind of went through this this experience and there was like a rising action and climax and resolution uh, in classic plot fashion. Um, but I think those are those are the ones that that's kind of in the pitch or not. You don't um, you don't just find that after the fact. I don't think so often. Speaking of different topics at Gastro, I mean, you talk a lot about this kind of sense of wonder. I'm sure you get a lot of pitches, um, and I'm sure a lot of those writers feel all of their pitches have that sense of wonder. Like, how do you parcel out what you think is really going to, um, a story and a writer accompanying that story that's going to make it shine and, like, kind of worthy of the publication? Yeah, I don't think it's unique to Alice Obscura. Like, we do ask ourselves, what exactly does wonder mean? Um, how do we explain that to people who are interested in writing for us? And how do we, um, you know, make sure when we're a publication trying to write about, um, have stories that take place all over the world, how do we make sure that, um, you know, we, we escape from tra some traps where we might think something is really unusual or unique, but that's just because we're, we're in Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, what, what seems really unusual to us is, is uh, pretty workaday in, you know, another spot um, that we're less familiar with. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, every at every publication you, you have this question of kind of, you know, someone can pitch something that just feels right for the publication and what's the difference between what you say yes to and, and what, what you end up passing on. Um, and so I think um, when I'm more often talking with people, um, with a writer about is, you know, if you explain this story to one of your friends, like, do you get a smile? Do you get a reaction? Um, cause I think, you know, some of the most popular stories I've ever written or that I've been part of as an, an editor or just per talked to, with a, a fellow writer about, um, you know, there are exceptions, but usually like you just share the idea and people are just, you know, people are reacting right away. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's, uh, I, I think that's often when you know you have something, when people are reacting, whether it's smiling, laughing, incredulity, uh, just asking questions because they want to know more. Um, that's, I think, a good sign across across journalism. And I think it's especially important when what you're, you're going for in, is wonder that, you know, there's there's some aspect of it that's just hard hard to define. But I think there's there's also an element that, um, you know, if um, it's something that when you share, people should be, you, you get that reaction, you know, that's, that's definitely a sign that you're on the right track. What's been the, the most interesting part of the transition for you personally from being a writer to now being an editor? And, and what have you learned about your own writing from spending so much time with other people's work? Uh, I learned that my own writing was too long. I don't know <laughs> if that's shocking since I was someone always working in digital where the page can keep extending forever. And, and someone who wasn't um, really uh, classically edited in the way that someone would if they, you know, got started at an, a newspaper or a, um, a magazine. Um, you know, I was someone at this startup that kind of morphed into a, a media publication. So I, I was more self-taught myself. 
Um, so I've definitely learned that my writing was too long, um, helping dozens of people every month cut down their own writing. Um, has, has certainly led me to appreciate all the times that I didn't do that to my own writing. Um, so I, I think I would hope that I've grown more more concise, at least after um, a few more attacks on what I've just written. Um, let's see. I mean, I think it's given me um, just a lot of um, appreciation for... Um, just a lot of appreciation. Well, a lot of appreciation for really good editors <laughs> um, as I as I've grown into the role. But but also I think yeah, just just appreciation for um, the kind of the coaching element of it, um, uh, especially when you're working not just on one piece, but you're you're working with say a staff writer or someone who you're uh, a contributor, a regular contributor, so someone you're gonna um, keep working with, and just the potential to. Um, give lots of feedback and keep figuring out the like writer editor relationship um and help them figure out exactly what will work for the publication and how to improve their own writing um i think you know that's something that uh i've, I've grown to appreciate a lot more um and i'm now incredibly appreciative of um the times when i have worked with a, a really good editor I receive this question a lot on, t on the culinary school end, so I'm also curious what you think about um, formal training within the writing sphere. Like, do should people, it's is good. it worth it to go to <laughs> school for writing, or can you learn everything on the job? Yeah, I think I've always wondered myself, I know it's a big question for young writers whether they should go to journalism school. Um, and I know not so long ago when I was mulling that question, especially mm -hmm. since I had not been, you know, formally trained or work with a professional editor, but, but had come from this kind of unusual, um, background, it was very much on my mind. Um, I can definitely say by far the most, I mean, I could basically not find a, I couldn't find someone who said it was a good idea, who really recommended going to journalism really? okay. school, which <laughs> felt very sad to me because I was like, I like school. I like learning. That that seems like it would be great. Um, I'm sure I would have benefited from journalism school. What are the main um, critiques? I mean, just cost is certainly one, considering that, um, okay. you know, the financial rewards for the majority of people to be in a journalist have gone down, but mm -hmm. the cost of journalism school has not. Um, so that's that's certainly um, part of it. Uh, I'm, I'm a little more, you know, spitballing here rather than quoting people sure, who was sure. giving me advice, but I think, you know, part of it too is just the sense that, um, you know, there isn't quite as much. Uh, it's a little bit more wild in the journalism world than kind of the gatekeepers here, here, and here. So I think some of the value of networking at a, a top journalism school um, aren't quite there. But by the same token, I feel like I've I've worked with young writers who have come to us out of a great journalism program, and they just know a lot about how to write well, and they recognize, um, even if they haven't gotten down how to implement everything yet, they have a really good awareness of um, you know, intangibles about like what, what a nut graph is, which, you know, I learned what a nut graph is far later than I'd like to admit. Mm -hmm. uh, a nut graph being, you know, that kind of paragraph where you really um, state what the article is going to be about. Um, and so, you know, I have a hard time imagining, I mean, they're talented people. I'm sure they would have, would have um, found their way um, if they'd taken a different path, but I have a hard time imagining that they didn't benefit from, you know, all these really great writers. They 
uh, and editors they got to learn from. And I know they're writers. You know, it would be a regular occasion for me to read a great magazine story. And, you know, at the bottom it says that so-and-so is a professor at the Columbia Journalism School. I'm like, well, that'd be great to talk with that person because, like, I was crying from this story. It was so good. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in two minutes with Alex Mayassi from Gastro Obscura. This program is brought to you by Jewel Sous Vide. My name is Katie Mosman Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real life Jewel user. When you cook with Jewel, there's zero guesswork. So, steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Paired app is intuitive to use and preloaded with all the recipes you'll need, and it has a great visual doneness guide. Jewel is awesome for holiday cooking. It's easy to cook for a crowd, and it's perfectly precise, so you can focus on entertaining without worrying about checking food temps, while Jewel does all the work. You can try out new cuts fearlessly. One of the best things I ever made sous vide was a juicy, tender heritage goose with juniper berries, and it was life-changing. And pro tip, Jewel is small and packs easily, so you can sneak it along on your holiday travels to be this season's food hero everywhere you go. With Jewel, you get perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code HRN. And happy holidays from all of us at Team HRN. And we're back with Alex Mayasi, the editor of Gastro Obscura. Um, we were talking about some of the really cool work that Alex has done uh, in his career prior to <laughs> prior to coming to Gastro Obscura. Tell us what's next. What are you? What are you? What direction are you, are you taking the, the website? Oh, well, it's funny. I was. We were talking a little bit before the show that um, you know when I was first talking to people at Alice Obscura about joining and becoming the editor of Gastro Obscura um, and launching Gastro Obscura. It's something that Gastro Obscura has been around for just over a year now. Um, that, you know, I was coming from, I was someone who'd like written, you know, a number of food articles that I was super excited about and I could would happily talk about how a dictator more or less invented Pad Thai like all day. Um, but I was someone who a lot of, you know, a lot of my, my clips and experience writing and editing was uh, business and economic stories. And so, you know, I certainly leaned into that fact. I think I'm someone who absolutely loves food stories, um, but I'm also someone who might pick up a food publication and actually find relatively little in there that's of interest to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And not because they're badly written or that was a bad issue, but just because a lot of food publications are tailored for people who say, want lots of recipes um, because they're cooking all the time and like I enjoy cooking but I don't I don't 
I don't need like a, ten new recipes every week. That's uh, not. I that's well beyond my capacity. Yeah. Um, and I'm not someone who necessarily is particularly interested in knowing about um, the fact that cauliflower is the like trendy vegetable this year. It's I mean, it's not rice. not this year, I guess. But you know, <laughs> if we go back a couple of years, or or you know, I'm not I'm not um, I'm happy to hear about what's going on in L.A. or New York uh, cooking scene. Um, top restaurants, but that's not something I'm particularly compelled to follow. Um, and so there are definitely food publications that, um, you know, they'll have some stories that I feel professional jealousy of. I'm like, oh, I wish I wrote that, or I wish I was the one who assigned that for Gastro Obscura now that I'm in, in this position. Um, but I think it's it's definitely the case that a lot of my favorite pieces of food journalism that I've ever read um, have appeared in more general interest publications and a number of them, a lot of them are written by people who are not professional, uh, food writers. Some are and some aren't. Um, and I think that's because, um, and so that's more what I wanted and, and what we do at Gastro Obscura, I think is, you know, the type of food writing that you don't have to be a foodie. You don't have to be someone who's cooking all the time. You don't, you know, Reading Gastro Obscura will not keep you up to date on food trends and what's going on in the, the top culinary scenes. Um, instead, it's, you know, stories that, like we talked about before, inspire a sense of wonder and curiosity. Um, and that's happening through food. Um, you know, we are we are not we did not invent the idea of food being a great lens to talk about all sorts of other topics and issues. Um, but it's something that we love to do. What are some of the stories that you're most excited about or the the, uh, the nuggets of uh, awareness or exploration that uh, that you you get the most excited about. Yeah, I think a story that um, I helped edit and that we published a few months ago um, gets a the um, both what Gastro Obscura does and also Atlas Obscura's mission of getting people out to explore um, and experience things. Um, so uh, we ran a story by a writer named Marquet, um, which was about um, Choreo Saram food. Um, and so Choreo Saram food, uh, it's something that's gotten some press before. Um, there's a very nice New York Times profile of a, a local restaurant that has Choreo Saram food. Um, but like, it's only in New York City where you are going to have a local review of a Choreo Saram restaurant. Um, Choreo Saram are a very small group of people, um, ethnic Koreans from mainly Uzbekistan. Um, and so, you know, it's this interesting fusion food of Korean, Uzbek, Russian, uh, or Uzbek, Central Asian more generally. Um, and, you know, I think people are just intrigued and want to try that type of food. Um, but then it has this really compelling, tragic backstory um, where the, the Koryo Saram, if, if you kind of go back uh, about 100 years, they were ethnic Koreans living um, just to the north of, of Korea, so in what was, you know, then Russia. Um, and um, if you fast forward a bit, the kind of short version of the story is that Stalin was um, convinced that these ethnic Koreans could not be trusted in the event of an um, upcoming war. He worried that they would be spies or unreliable. And so he deported each and every one um, to 
what's you know modern day uh, Uzbekistan, a few other parts of Central Asia. How did he choose Uzbekistan as the destination? I think I don't know exactly. I think it's just though that like it's very far away. You know, like they would be far from Korea. Um, and it's just, you know, it was just kind of, I mean, Stalin was somewhat infamous for just moving massive amounts of people around, um, due to these types of, uh, concerns. Um, and I mean, no small amount of racism in this case. And, um, so, you know, these, these people were just kind of, uh, the conditions of moving there was, you know, it was all at once. It was sudden, um, it was dangerous, you know, uh, transit was not comfortable. Um, and they were just dropped in this unfamiliar place. I believe uh, Stalin also hoped that um, I think some of these transits also were done to they would kind of move people to kind of frontier areas that they wanted to develop. So they were hoping that these, you know, they'd help um, with local farming um, and developing the area. Um, so, you know, these people just dropped in a completely unfamiliar place. Um, but, you know, over time, they, you know, there was a mix of, you know, becoming integrated and also keeping their own traditions. And you have this interesting fusion food develop. Um, and so, you know, it was a, it's a really interesting story um, to hear about the history. Uh, but then also, you know, when I was editing the story, I was like, well, I want to I want to go try the food. And so I, um, you know, biked down towards Coney Island, where there are two Koryos Ram restaurants uh, in, in um, that area. And I I went to one. Um, and it was just like, I had, which one did you go to? Uh, it has several different names. <laughs> um, I think, uh, from currently Eddie's fancy food is one of them and perhaps the most memorable. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I biked down there and it was just, I, I think the kind of exact experience I associate with Atlas Obscura of getting people to go out and try something they might never find out about otherwise. Um, it's a very unassuming restaurant. Um, and I think, you know, it was me and one other Russian man in there when I was eating. And, um, you know, it was just food uh, that I'd never tasted before. Um, and it was really, you know, uh, it, I, I, I like talking about that story because it's one where it was both a really compelling story, but also um, kind of a prompt and a thrust to go out and try something new and find someplace. Uh, and what do they speak? Not not at the restaurant. Like in uh, when the ethnic group was living in Russia, they, do they speak Russian? Did they, were they? Yeah. So there's a lot of a, a, uh, adoption of Russian. Um, I think both um, you know assertively and also um, as happens in these cases of you know some level of um, you know the Russian government um, trying to you know integrate people more forcefully. So you you know you often see that coming out in terms of the you know policies at schools about what language is spoken and the education there interesting yeah. um so i also want to talk about uh for people who want to go into food writing um who might be have written a little bit before uh kind of advice on people who want to break into food writing how to frame their stories how to pitch you and other editors so that it feels compelling it feels interesting and uh can you know, get eventually get more and more of their pieces into various publications. Yeah. It's so probably one place to start is that it can be difficult to figure out how to even pitch a story. Um, I recognize. Um, so I think don't like, don't be dissuaded, go figure out <laughs> like usually there are pitch guidelines somewhere. Um, ours are floating around on Google docs that are, you know, made available in various places. Um, but Definitely, um, like, don't be afraid to ask, you know, 
tweet at, um, you know, you know, talk to people, you know, um, look around for sites that are, uh, resources for writers, um, or, you know, um, you know, if it comes down to it, like tweet a writer who you think is great and be like, how does, you know, <laughs> where you wrote for this place? Like, how do you do, you know, where, what, what is the pitch email? Um, cause I, I think those can often be hidden. I've had that my own experience, even once I was fairly into journalism of just like, I don't know where to find their, their guidelines. This is surprisingly hard. Um, what about responses? And if you start, if you hear no's, what should you do? Yeah, I think, I think, um, you know, some people are naturalists to this, others aren't. I was not. You have to be aware that hearing no is like the expected response. Um, you know, if you, if 50% of your pitches were accepted, you're, you're a rock star. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're doing fantastic. Um, you'll see regularly um, or hear, see or hear um, accounts from very successful writers where they talk about, um, you know, writing a story that was nominated for all sorts of prizes and then they pitch the same editor again and, you know, they just get, it gets rejected quite quickly. Um, that happens all the time. You know, it's, it's, um, it can, it's maybe helpful to think a little bit more like you were pitching uh, movies at, to like a Hollywood producer. Like they're, you know, it's not going to work out every time, you know, not everything gets made into a Hollywood blockbuster. Um, journalism isn't quite that hard, but um, in terms of, you know, how many pitches you need to do. Um, but you definitely, it's, uh, helpful to know like that's going to happen even to the best you're going to hear no you need to know that there are a lot of reasons for why you might have heard no it's not necessarily that it's a bad idea there are all sorts of different reasons um at that and that but also sometimes that's helpful if someone says no because uh they might have recognized for a reason you haven't quite grasped yet why the story is not um not right so you know it could be right for a different publication um we also all have ideas that that don't turn out um and it's actually helpful if you get to discard the ones that aren't going to work out it, it saves you time what kinds of pitches do you like to see what what do you respond to not respond literally like respond to the email but like what gets you going yeah i mean i think um you know i know when a pitch just like maybe like we were talking about before like when it makes me react um you just notice that immediate reaction um, and so, you know, it, it, it's hard to say like, you know, that's, that's different every time. It depends on the story, but I think, um, some kind of actionable advice on that is, um, I know if you are trying to pitch a story, you want to do freelance writing, um, you're often kind of gonna, um, grab, you know, the first idea you have and then look for a publication that you think might, might feasibly want it. Um, and, and that might work, but I think a lot of the time it can be a mistake to, to quickly pitch a publication. Um, cause especially if you haven't worked with anyone at that publication before, um, you know, it's unlikely that the first pitch you thought of is going to be the one that's going to make them, you know, on a day when they're looking through 10, 20 pitches, um, say like, yes, this is the one I want and I want to give this person money and I want to spend, invest a bunch of my time, mm -hmm. um, working with this person. Um, so I know I've made that mistake before and, and definitely, um, you know, I think when you're sending a pitch email, especially to an editor you've never worked with before, um, you, you know, you kind of want to be bouncing on the edge of your seat a little bit in excitement. Like that's how you like, you, you have that feeling in your gut. Like this, this is a great story. Like when I tell my friends about it, you know, over a beer like they keep asking more and more questions um and you know especially for for something like gastro where we're going for 
something that's a bit hidden and, and has, you know, inspires wonder in people. It should, you know, it should inspire wonder in people. Um, you know, I think uh, it can be easy to just want to do a story. Um, and so you kind of grab the first thing and you'll end up pitching, um, you know, uh, it's a lot more effective to, you know, pitch a few great stories that you're really excited about rather than, you know, 10 times as many stories that are kind of okay. Can you, can you sense that excitement in the email? Does the way that they, <laughs> they do the, is the way that they write the, the pitch, is that uh, telling for you or are you really focused on the idea? Yeah. I mean, you can tell, yeah, I think it's both. I mean, you know, the, you'll get excited about the idea, but also, um, like, yeah, I've had that experience of, you know, working with someone and they just, they're writing about something like genuinely interesting. And you're like, it just really feels like you're phoning it in. Can you not like, why don't, you know, like this isn't, you know, journalism is, we're not, we're not being paid like investment bankers. Like if you're not having fun, why are we here? Like you should, you should enjoy this. Um, so yeah, that definitely comes through with people's writing. And, um, you know, if you're a writer and you, you, you know, um, you know, I, I, we had a staff writer at Alice Obscura who wrote like two versions of an article. Like one was like a standard write up of this interesting um, piece of research. And then she wrote the exact same article in like rhyming Susian verse. Why? <laughs> and like, uh, just cause like that's who she is. And cause it was fun. Um, I, it made sense for the story too. I think there's a kind of like Susian element to the story. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, I think if you, I wouldn't necessarily recommend like pitching everything in verse all the time, although <laughs> I, I would remember it probably. Um, but I think like you always, you always sense that excitement, like, you know, and that's a lot of the best writers are known for the fact that they get people like super interested in a pile of wood chips or whatever thing doesn't seem like it would be interesting to you. But then, you know, someone's just really excited about it and like takes you on this, this trip to tell you about it. Um, so that, that comes through. What about, um, just like developing your voice and as you've grown as a writer yourself, um, and an editor too, um, how have you kind of seen your writing change, seen your voice change and how you write and how would you recommend like helping uh, people who are up and coming to find a better and closer representation of themselves through their writing? I think a piece of feedback I find myself giving often to young writers, um, and that many editors give to young writers, um, is that I know, um, like something I did when I was younger was that I was always trying to be really writerly. Um, so I think, you know, when I'm writing something, um, you know, there's always a turn of phrase or, um, I'm not good at puns, but I know a lot of writers, they're just putting puns everywhere. Um, and you're kind of always trying to phrase everything in interesting ways. Um, and it's, it's, uh, then for the reader, it's exhausting. Um, you know, it's like if you were an interior decorator and you just put like sparkles on everything and everything was gold. Yeah. Um, and you know, now like you're, you're Trump's interior decorator and it's just, <laughs> you walk in the room and it's just overwhelming and you're uncomfortable. Um, and it's too bad cause you put all this effort into it and like you are, you know, it's great when people can be clever in their writing. Um, but I think, um, you know, it's, it's very helpful to realize that you don't have to put so much effort into like every turn of phrase and to realize the power of actually, uh, mainly focusing just on the idea or the story and then telling it really clearly. Um, cause that's really where the power comes from is having a, finding a really compelling story or really interesting idea. Um, and you know, that's, that's a lot of editing is taking away everything that's not the story. Um, and then, you know, once you're focused on, 
um, just finding something that is really compelling, explaining it clearly, then you can have some fun with the writing and then you're not stressed because you're trying to um, carry the story just on the weight of being really clever with the writing and having metaphors and puns. Um, and, and, you know, then if you have a great idea and you've told it clearly, um, then your, your pun or your clever turn of phrase will be like just, uh, you know, tasteful interior decorating. It'll be having like one chair in the corner with yeah. a pop of color um, and it'll be nice and not, not overwhelming. In the uh, the last few minutes of the podcast, we're going to transition into a uh, our rapid fire segment, which Yay. sometimes we forget to do, but we did not forget to do it today. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so we're just going to throw a bunch of funny wonky questions at you and see what happens. Jenny, you want to start? Um, how do you like your eggs in the morning? Oh, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I often <laughs> I often microwave my <gasps> eggs oh, no. just no. as a time saver, <laughs> and so I don't have to do more dishes. Um, like, do you microwave them, them in the shell, or like you crack them open and you microwave them? Crack them in a bowl. Well, and if you microwave them in the shell, they explode. Oh, I've never done this. They do. Isn't this a thing? I think you also have to to break the yolk. If you microwave a whole yolk, it explodes. The, really? The liquid inside. Well, now no, I, now I want to try this <laughs> even more. Yeah, we should try. But it. I've, oh, we I've, should I've do yet it. I've yet to explode an egg in the microwave. Um, do you have a, a a technique or what's your microwave egg recipe? Yeah. How many seconds do you microwave the egg? Oh, I I first put it in for 53 seconds then wow. give it a second and then like another 23 seconds okay um i think if you just do it all in one go then then you get some explosions this i have found we're, we're so fascinated by this answer <laughs> this because we've asked, we've asked this question many times and it's always like scrambled over easy yeah as you can tell i've embraced my role as like someone who moved into a food editor role without uh uh, the food background. And so, you know, there's a question like, do I pretend that I'm always like eating fabulously and uh, in a sophisticated manner? And, and, you know, plenty of great food people aren't uh, being sophisticated about food all the time. But no, it's like I'm going to embrace. Yeah, yeah, like I'm still I can tell people like, yeah, I'll, I've, I microwave eggs. It right. saves yeah. time. I like then sometimes on weekends, like leisurely making eggs and putting goat cheese on it that melts just a little bit and it's great. But so there, the there's, there's your food writer bona fide, <laughs> your, your slow scrambled eggs with goat cheese, but, but mostly it's just my craft. Um, what's the best meal you've ever had for under $10 or $5? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Corio Saram restaurant I referenced before, I believe was under $10. Um, and I, you know, it's one of the few meals at a restaurant that I've eaten in bike shorts. Um, so I think that that fits with the, the general thrust of the question of a rather <laughs> informal, uh, inexpensive setting. What did you eat? Um, let's see. I had a fish dish that had a nice mix of, um, like spicy and cool flavors. Um, I had a soda that I'm forgetting the name right now. Um, Tarkan soda, I believe, which is bright green, which is or really one exciting. The, one of the tarragon. Oh. Uh, yeah, sodas, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's got that kind of um, like that almost like good. licorice flavor. And yeah. yeah, I mean the green's really just from food dye, but like it is exciting. Yeah. I got excited. If you could um, master any skill overnight, what would it be? So I have. I remember I kind of got frustrated. I've been thinking about this for like five years. The, the fact that... This question? No. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Um, well, no, just the fact that, like, you know how you'll um, you'll be... Someone wants to make small talks. They say, like, if you had to choose a superpower, what would it be? Or, you know, would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Um, and by far, 
maybe you've had a different experience than me, like almost everyone says flight over invisibility. I just want to teleport. I don't want to do any flying. Okay. <laughs> Flying's too much. Work. Just no need for the rest of you to listen to the rest of this. But right, like so many people say, I would want to be able to fly. Um, it just really bothers me because I realize like there are like you can fly. And I don't just mean like you can go in an airplane. I mean like hang gliding and paragliding, like you can learn to fly and it is like you are using your own effort and you aren't you're like practically flapping wings like you can learn to fly and like none of us do it um and it's crazy kind of crazy and bonkers to me and so i've i I feel like this has bothered me for years so i feel like i would maybe i would choose uh being able to master like hang gliding overnight um what food do you feel like most represents your your childhood in your in your memories oh macaroni and cheese I ate a lot of macaroni and cheese. Was it Kraft macaroni and cheese? Yes. Oh, no, Annie's. Sorry. Annie's? Annie's. Yeah, a lot of Annie's. Like, like white bread shells. <laughs> or yeah, exactly. And ate a lot of that, like, with my best friend uh, underneath the table, which is, you know, the lazy child's fort. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Alex, it's been such a pleasure having you. Um, tell our listeners where they can find you. And if they're interested in pitching, where would they, where would they email <laughs> where their pitches to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find me um, on Twitter at uh, at Amayasi. Um, also happy for you to communicate me w- with me there. Ask me about pitching or other things. Um, love working with new writers. I uh, would love to hear from folks. Um, you can also um, find the pitch guidelines for Atlas Obscura and Gastro Obscura in our FAQ section on our website um, and the email address for, for pitching uh, Gastro. Um, and the, web, the website is? It's uh, atlasobscura.com slash gastro. Um, well thank you again for coming and you can always find us um, at at why food podcast on facebook and instagram and if you have nominations or questions or thoughts please email us at at why food at heritage radio network.org thanks to our awesome engineer matt patterson and to the creators of our theme song a band called uh, the red crickets and the song is blind thanks see you next week bye Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.